Yes, it's great to uh, visit with one another and uh, hopefully make some new friends. So glad to see all of you here on this New Year's Eve Sunday morning. And so we're all aware, as Glenn even pointed out, on the verge of a new year. And uh, the whole idea of new really is just uh, where our Lord is at, right? It's, it's, it's a value our God has. The Lord likes what is new, right? He gives us a new year each, every year, each winter we get a new year, new seasons, new growth, new crops. But even more importantly, a new covenant, and best of all, new life in Jesus Christ. And with that, a new heart, a new spirit, a new vision, a new purpose, and um, just a, a new way of looking at all that is important and matters. God likes things new, and I'm glad we get to be part of that. You know, even the very end of the Bible talks about what is new. Revelation 21.5 says, Behold, I am making all things new. And so uh, that's, that's a theme the Lord has. And tonight it happens again as we have New Year's Eve and all the festivities. I saw this quote. At a young age, you're allowed to stay up late on New Year's Eve. At middle age, you're forced to. I don't know <laughs> if that applies to any of you. Sometimes, you know, there's the one who can't wait to stay up late. And the other one is like, oh, do I have to? You know, you, you sort of feel obligated maybe just to be sort of a team player. Um, I've read this, only 15% of Americans go to a party or a public event for New Year's Eve. That means 85% stay home. And I'm proud to be among them. All right. I, I, there's no place like home. It's the cozy, warm. Although I do like to watch the, I, I actually am a night owl. So it's easy for me to stay up. It's, it's common. I'm up till midnight anyway. And so uh, I like to watch the ball drop, you know, Times Square, and see the fireworks around the world, all the highlights as, as the celebration goes on around the world. So, so I do like that. Now, part of the New Year's Eve thing, of course, though, is the, are the resolutions. The New Year's Eve, right, the New Year's resolutions. And uh, maybe this, this connects... Uh, to you. And if it does, and you made resolutions for this year, the bad news is the year's almost over. The good news is you have 13 hours and about 20 minutes to still make it come true, okay? So you're, you still have a chance in the next 13 hours to fulfill your resolution. This was interesting. It says this, some stat I read. Of people in their 20s, they do pretty good on resolutions, about 39% of people in their 20s keep their resolutions. But for people who are over 50, only about 14% keep their resolutions. I'm like, how are we, you know, we've got the, I, I miss that. We've got the age, the wisdom, the maturity, and yet these young whippersnappers in their 20s are clobbering us when it comes to keeping resolutions. And I think the only solution to this is, yeah, don't make resolutions. Just forget the whole thing. All right. With, with kind of one sort of exception, I want to say, we need to make the right resolution. And that ties into the, uh, the title of my sermon and what we're looking at today. The number one category for making resolutions has to do with your physical health. That's what people go to first. They're like, I'm going to eat less in the new year. I'm going to eat more healthy foods in the new year. I'm going to start going to the gym. 
or walking more. I'm going to do this or that because I want my physical health to really improve in the new year. And that's all well and good. God gave us bodies. Everything we do is out of this body he gave us. So let's take care of it. That's a good thing. But I want to say even more important than our physical health is our spiritual health. And I hope today as you hear these words from, from the Bible, Acts 21, there's, there's something in you that stirs. It says, if I'm going to make a resolution in the new year, I want it to be about my spiritual health. I want it to be about my walk my, my, with the Lord, my faith in God. I want to focus on that first and foremost as I approach this new year. And if you have that heart, I think we're going to get a phrase right here that we can use and just take to heart. And it can be the very thing that becomes sort of a resolution in and of itself. Whether you have a church background or not, this title, and if you want to look at the bulletin here and uh, under the title there at the top, there's a place for sermon notes. But at the top it says, the Lord's will be done. And you may have said that, you may have heard it, and it's because it's a great statement to make. The Lord's will be done. It's a phrase that's used again and again in different ways in the Bible, and I want us to look at an example of that today. If you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 21, and I'm going to do my best to cover most of the chapter. We're going to have to move quickly but kind of a, a little way, maybe a third of the way into it or so, in verse 14, here's what it says. When he would not be dissuaded, and I'll explain a little of the background of what's going on in a minute, but I want you to hear this verse just to take us into it. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. What's going on here that they would arrive at that conclusion? And how can we make that our statement as well for everything we face in the new year? Our challenges, our dreams, our health concerns, our goals, our plans, our aspirations. Conflict, difficulty, good news and bad. How, how can we all get to a place where we just say, the Lord's will be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this passage of scripture. I pray that as we look at these many verses, you would use them to draw us close to you. You would open up our hearts to truth and guide us, Lord, in how to apply what we learn. Guide us so that these words can change us and make us better, make us different, make us more into the image of Christ. Lord, as we approach this new year, we want to give it to you and we want you to be glorified. So, Lord, guide us now, I pray, as we study your word. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for this time we have together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, there's four things I want us to sort of have as points from this title. And uh, if you want to write them down, I'll just list them as we go. But there's four different things where, where we see them really sort of landing on this idea, the Lord's will be done. And so the first point is this, the Lord's will be done even when we disagree, even when we disagree, the Lord's will be done. Now, you heard some disagreement already in the verse I read. It actually happens twice. So I'm going to back up and see the first point of disagreement and why yet there's this desire, the Lord's will be done. So now chapter 21 still, 
starting in verse 4, here's what it said. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Now, where is there? It's the city of Tyre. So they're traveling, this group of disciples, the apostle Paul, Timothy, Luke, and others are traveling. They were in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. It was called something different by Asia Minor back then. They were in Ephesus, other places. But Paul is determined to go to Jerusalem. So they're traveling there. They've been on a ship sailing through the Mediterranean, past a lot of famous islands and places. And on their way, now they've landed on the shore, what would be modern-day Lebanon, and that's where Tyre was, famous city in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, one of the kings there, Hiram, the king of Tyre, was a wealthy, powerful city. He provided, remember when David built his palace or when Solomon built the temple? The king of Tyre provided the lumber. And so it has a, a big place in the Bible. Not always good. Jezebel from the Old Testament, she wasn't so good. She was from Tyre. In fact, Tyre was so bad at points that the king of Tyre was compared to Satan by the prophet Ezekiel. And so it's, it's a fairly famous place in the Bible, and that's where they land. In time, it was destroyed by the Assyrians. Later, it was destroyed by Alexander the Great. He took in an army and destroyed Tyre, all of the warring that went on in all those cities and those places over history. Jesus himself visited Tyre. And so as they arrived there, not surprisingly, there's already Christians there. There's Christ followers. And so Paul and his friends, as they're traveling towards Jerusalem and Tyre is getting closer to it, they gather with these disciples. And so picking up where it says, stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. This is such an interesting passage. Because these disciples are gathering around the Apostle Paul, and they're sort of by the Spirit urging him, don't go to Jerusalem because of the hardship he will face. But as Paul is hearing this, rather than, okay, I won't go, no, no, he continues on his journey. But their warnings to him, rather than sort of discourage him and and dissuade him, actually would have confirmed the very thing the Spirit had already told Paul. Because in the chapter prior, chapter 20, verse 23, the Spirit had revealed to him that prison and hardships are waiting. And so when they come and, and through the Spirit, they're telling him don't go. They're saying because the Spirit had revealed to them that prison and hardships are waiting. But Paul already knew that. He knew that was part of this journey. And yet he also knew, again, if you look back in chapter 20, verse 22, it says that Paul was compelled by the Spirit to go. Were they wrong in giving him this message, don't go? No. The Spirit revealed that to them, and they needed to share it with him. Was Paul wrong in going? No, the Spirit compelled him to go. 
What I want us to hear in this and what is so powerful is how they handle disagreement. See, our, our theme phrase here this morning is the Lord's will be done. Now, my first point is even in disagreement. How do we handle disagreement? Wouldn't it be great if we could always handle it like they did? They didn't want Paul to go. But they didn't get angry. Well, forget you then. They didn't lose their temper. They didn't say things that were unkind that they shouldn't say. What'd they do? They stayed right with him and his traveling companions, and together they walked to the ship. And then it says, what a beautiful scene. It says the women, the children, whole families are with Paul and these other leaders, and they literally go right to where the ship is probably just anchored right there off the shore, and they literally go to the beach. And then what do they do? They just they kneel down, and they start praying. It's like they're saying, don't go. Paul is saying, I need to go. And so they all say, then let's go to the Lord and let's pray to him and let's ask for his will to be done. And boy, what a word for all of us. There are going to be disagreements in the new year, right? There just are. I mean, you know, not, to, not to burst your bubble, but you're, you're going to be in relationship with people, your family, your coworkers, whoever. And you're just going to have disagreements. But boy, if we could look at this and say, our heart in those times is to pray and to just say, Lord, your will be done. We see this differently. But the most important thing is your will be done. And so they have this, this time of prayer. So that's disagreement number one. And when they handle it this way too, they are just handling it how Jesus modeled for them to handle it. Remember when the disciples asked him, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And how did he pray? He said, okay, let me give you an example. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, you know the next part, thy will be done. The Lord's will be done. That's how we handle everything and certainly disagreement. Lord, your will be done. Jesus modeled it, and they are living it out right there. And I want to give you that challenge. Pray through disagreement. Give it to the Lord. So that's the first example of disagreement and how they handle it in prayer. Now let's continue on. Let's go lead, read the verses that lead up to the, the verse 14 I read earlier. So they get on the ship, they travel, and the next place they land is Caesarea. And that's a little further down the coast, now in, Jerusalem, now in Israel, closer to Jerusalem. They're getting closer to their goal. But they land now in Caesarea, famous city again in the Bible. I, a few a month or two ago, we talked about it, how King Herod built it up, made it a beautiful coastal city, kind of even the capital for the Roman Empire in that area. It's a beautiful city. And so now they arrive there. And as they're there, they're with the different disciples. Let's see what happens here. Look at, listen for the disagreement. It's interesting. I'll start in verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands or feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and will deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not 
to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. We got disagreement again, don't we? Two different views on what should happen. And in this case, it's not just others, it's even Paul's inner circle. Luke, Timothy, like his closest brothers, are like, don't go. And it's not even just that it's said, there's this acted out drama by this prophet Agabus. Now, in the Old Testament, sometimes prophets acted out their message. They wanted to have a bigger impact. And so different prophets would do that. And uh, in this case, we, we see it happening. He actually goes up to Paul and takes his belt. Now, I've never had anyone do this to me. This is a little unusual. If someone came up to you, hey, I, I want to share something with you. You know, give me your belt. You'd be like, no, I'm not giving you my belt. What are you talking about? Just tell me, right? But, but Paul, you know, gives him his belt. And, and he goes through this kind of drama because he wants to have an impact. Uh, and he's following some great prophets who did this in the Old Testament. Isaiah did this. Uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, like these, these great prophets of old, they acted out their message. And so he does that because he wants to have an impact as he brings this truth. And here's the heart that, that I want us to catch from this. The Lord's will be done, even in disagreement. And when we disagree... We can still be considerate. We can still be respectful. We can still be compassionate. And we see that in Paul. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't accuse them of being so unspiritual. No, he says, what are, you're breaking my heart. He didn't like to see them so upset and sad. And, so, and there's just a kindness there. He's being honest about his emotion, and they are too. They're weeping. Right? And he's seeing it. And in that, there's just genuine consideration for one another as they're facing this huge moment that Paul will have to face when he gets to Jerusalem. There's disagreement, but the, 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 the prevailing thought is we're going to be considerate. The Lord's will be done. He doesn't insult. He doesn't criticize. He doesn't judge. And they show respect and consideration and love for the Apostle Paul as well. I think there's something here because in our disagreements, if our heart is for the Lord's will to be done, we could look at the sort of the circumstances surrounding that disagreement and we should be able to say, are we kind of veering from God's will here? And we don't know the outcome yet of this. His will, not ours. We don't know how this is going to get resolved. But the way we're handling it, it's turning ugly. This is not of the Lord. There's some harshness here. There's some biting meanness here. This isn't of the Lord. And we can go back to these passages and say, yeah, there's times of real big disagreement about what should happen, but we can look at these passages and go, this is a, 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 how you handle it. This is what we learn from this. See the prayer, kneeling in prayer, being considerate of one another. And so that's something to take to heart in this, this first point uh, even in disagreement, the Lord's will be done, and that will influence how we treat one another as we're waiting to see what happens. Along those lines, let's keep the story going. Point number two, the Lord's will be done when our plans 
fail, when our plans fail. Paul gets to Jerusalem, there's still a lot of concern for his well-being. And so they have a plan to fix it, to keep him safe and okay. They have a plan. Let's see what it is. It's interesting what they sort of come up with. As he, he arrives there, and before I read it, he arrives there, and initially there's wonderful news because he's this famous missionary, been traveling all over, and God has done some amazing things. People are believing in Christ. Jews, Gentiles, and he talks specifically about the Gentiles and how they're believing in the Lord. He would have told them about how the Holy Spirit filled them, how they turned to God. And he's giving this praise report, and it's wonderful. But as that sort of works itself through and he's done sharing it, then he gets the not-so-good news. His reputation has preceded him, and it's not good. And the whole city is aware of this Paul, Saul, whose name was changed to Paul. And their view, all the Jews, is that Paul is teaching other Jews, don't obey the law. Don't keep the commandments. Disregard the teachings of Moses. And they're not happy. And so the apostles, as they're gathered there with Paul, they're warning him, this is not good. And the leader, the spokesman, is James, right? The half-brother of Jesus wrote the book of James. And he's telling him this. But then he says, Paul, we have a plan. And here's what you're going to do. There's four men who have taken a vow. And this is a vow of purity, of dedication to God, the God of the Jews. This is a very Jew, Jewish law-abiding vow. And we'll talk a little about it. We know exactly what it is. But, but there's this vow they've taken. And they say, you join them, Paul. And not only that, you pay their expenses. Meaning if they bring an offering at the end of it, or a gift or a sacrifice, you pay for it. This will show your commitment to the law of Moses, to our people, to the Jews. So this is their big plan. And then no one will be against you. You'll win them over. All this harm this, that you fear, it's not going to happen. Okay, so this is their plan. And so let's read in verse 26. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Well, we don't know exactly what the vow is. Some think it was the Nazarite vow, which is spoken of in the Old Testament. It involved not drinking fermented drink, uh, not cutting your hair, at the end of that an offering would be presented. Uh, but the Nazarite vow had to go at least 30 days. Paul wouldn't have been a part of all that because it's only a week. But maybe he was just there for the ceremony at the end and for the purification. Or maybe it was a slightly different vow than the Nazarite vow. But he participates because he wants to show them he's not against the teachings of Moses, the law, and the Jewish nation. So he does this with him. This is a plan that he wants to be a part of. And it's all about his heart. Because you might say, why'd Paul do that? Isn't his whole point that we're saved by faith in Jesus alone? Why would he do all of this? Remember Paul's number one thing was to say, I'm going to be all things to all men that I might win some. He's like, to the Jews, I'm a Jew. To the Gentiles, I'm a Gentile. 
He didn't let all those other things distract him from the one most important thing, and that salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of all who believe in him. Because he alone died on the cross for our sins. He defeated death when he rose on the third day, that anyone who believes in him would not perish, but rather have eternal life. That's the heart of the gospel, and Paul wanted everyone to receive it. And as a Jew, he was still fine obeying Jewish laws and customs. And so he goes along with the plan. But remember where we're at. The Lord's will be done even when our plans fail. Let me read in verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has, filled this, has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus and the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. So much for the plan. It did not work. When Paul knew what was coming, the Spirit revealed it to him, and now it's about to unfold. They didn't even make it seven days. Before it was completed, he is spotted, and they cry out these different accusations. One is that he's saying, don't obey the law, and speaking against that. The other was that he was bringing a Gentile into the temple. And just, just so you know how the temple was, it was some huge courtyards, and the outer courtyard, Gentile believers could go in, but they could not go in the inner courtyard. In fact, they found an ancient inscription on there that says the Gentile would have themselves to blame for their deaths that would certainly ensue if they would proceed beyond the barrier to the inner courts. And so they're saying he brought a Gentile into this inner court, and this accusation is enough to stir up the crowd along with the fact that he's teaching against the Jewish uh, law and scriptures. So much for the plan. I wonder if later, if Paul was talking to James, he was like, yeah, great plan, James. <laughs> but in James' defense, he could have said, well, Paul, you should have read that book I wrote. Have you read the book of James? <laughs> he wrote it about 10 years before this happened. And here's what James wrote. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Well, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Even James knew, and James taught it. Just as Jesus prayed it, and now we're learning it here, the Lord's will be done, even when our plans fail. That doesn't mean we shouldn't make plans. 
We should. We want to be organized. God is a God of order. And we all make plans. Every day, right? It's common when you're talking to a family member. So what are your plans today? Right? Just to ask that. What are your plans for this weekend? Right? We all make plans. And that's just being orderly and organized. But we always yield them to the Lord. His will be done. Tonight you might hear a song, Old Lang Syne, written by Robert Burns. But he's also famous for a poem, To a Mouse. And it has that famous line, you've heard it, Steinbeck named a book after it. The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Yes, they do. If it happened to Paul and James, two men who wrote most of the New Testament, (laughs) if their plans didn't work out, it's probably likely that many of ours won't either. But like them, we can say, we must always say, the Lord's will be done. Because God has something better. His plans are always, always, always better than ours. So that's point number two. Let's keep going with the story. When plans don't work out, the Lord's will be done. Point number three, during times of suffering. During times of suffering, the Lord's will be done. The suffering begins in what I read. Because it says they they seized him and they dragged him out of the temple. Everything that was prophesied is about to unfold. As they drag him out of the temple, it says in verse 31, as they were seeking to kill Paul, word came to the tribune of the cohort that Jerusalem was in confusion. Seeking to kill him gives you a glimpse of what he's dealing with now. They are trying to beat him to death. And we can only imagine this this mob that has him as they're just raining down blows on him. They're kicking him. They're hitting. They're doing everything they can to take his life. He is under attack and suffering. In fact, as it goes on from there, um, it says in the next verse, as the soldiers run down, they stopped the people from beating Paul. He is suffering greatly as he goes through this. But sometimes it's in the hardship, it's in the suffering that God's greatest work is done. And Paul understood this. He was no stranger to suffering. You know that six different times a crowd is stirred up against the Apostle Paul in the Bible and he comes under physical attack. For most of us, we go a lifetime without suffering physical attack because of our faith, thankfully. But Paul had it happen again and again. And not only that, he had internal attacks, internal suffering. He had health issues that were very difficult on him. And and he didn't like it. He wanted it to go away. And listen to what he writes in 2 Corinthians 12. He talks about being given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults, in hardships and persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Lord's will be done 
even during times of suffering. Because it's those times, as weak as we may be, that God's power is made perfect in us. It's in those times where what really matters becomes more clear than ever, that we're alive for our Lord. And whether it's in joy or anguish and sorrow, we will serve him. And we will answer the call wherever he leads. Sometimes it's the suffering that clarifies the most for us what really matters and who we belong to, not just now, but forever. And as difficult as it may be, Paul saw the good in it. He saw Christ's power rest on him. He saw God's grace poured out. C.S. Lewis was asked, uh, why do the righteous suffer? And he replied, why not? They're the only ones who can take it. I read an illustration about a silversmith that uh, that is traditional way back in the day, many, many years ago, and how they knew when the silver was perfect is when they could see their own reflection in it. And then they knew it was perfect. But they also knew how to get it there. They had to apply enough heat to burn out the impurities and the contaminants and the carbon. But they had to make sure they didn't apply so much heat that it lost its luster. But if they got it just right, they could see their reflection. And our call in this life is to reflect the Lord Jesus Christ. That God's love, his truth, his goodness would be seen in us. We want to reflect him. And sometimes he accomplishes that the most by allowing us to go through hardship and allowing us to go through suffering. And that's what happens to the Apostle Paul here. But even then, our hearts cry as always, the Lord's will be done. And when we do that, we model our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he drops to the ground in prayer. He's sweating blood. He knows the suffering that's on, uh, on the immediate horizon. But he prays out, my father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He models the very words that we're reading today. When in suffering, the Lord's will be done. And then the fourth and final point is this, the Lord's will be done when deliverance comes. This is kind of interesting what happens here. Paul is beaten. They're trying to beat him literally to death. But God brings some deliverance from an unlikely group. Verse 32 says, says, he at once took soldiers. This is the tribune. This is the person who's in charge of the Roman troops in that area, right there in the temple. He took soldiers and centurions, meaning more than one, and a centurion was over 100 soldiers. So there might have been 200 soldiers. There's a large group of soldiers that rush in. It says he took them. They ran down to them. And when they... When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Paul is no longer under attack because of the Romans to the rescue of all things. And then in verse 35, as they get him and they're taking him to the barracks, the crowd is still moving in, wanting to get Paul. And verse 35 says, and when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. 
I love this moment. Have you seen in concerts where the star jumps off the stage and the people carry them, you know, the, the, the rock star? This seems to be happening for the Apostle Paul. Like the soldiers are lifting him up. and car- I've climbed a lot of stairs. No one's ever carried me up them. But here, Paul is being carried by the soldiers all the way up to the top of the stairs, away from this attack and this beating that was happening. It's just a, a moment where we have to realize Sometimes God provides deliverance in ways you would never expect it. Now, when Stephen was being stoned, the the Romans didn't help. They weren't typically there to help. But in this case, they're coming to the rescue, and the beating stops. And I just think we can never limit what God will do. He will impress us. He will surprise us. He is so creative and so good and so helpful. But now that the beating has stopped and he's at the top of the steps, Paul has a pretty good idea of God's will. And he knows this is his moment. And he's going to preach truth to the crowds. And so he orchestrates that by first speaking to the commander in Greek. And the commander's surprised. You speak Greek? The commander thought he was an Egyptian who was a part of an uprising. And so he he was surprised, and he said, yes, I speak Greek. In fact, I'm from Tarsus. Tarsus was known as a very well-educated city. And so Paul builds a little clout with the commander. And after he does that, the commander is a little surprised, maybe even impressed. Paul says, I'd like to speak to the crowd, the crowd that was just trying to beat him to death. He says, I'd like to address them. And, And the commander is so surprised that he's like, okay. He says that he'll let him do it. And having won his approval, Paul then speaks to the crowd. But he doesn't speak in Greek. He speaks in Hebrew because that's their language. And hearing him speak in Hebrew, it says a hush came over this crowd. I mean, they were screaming and jeering, trying to beat him to death. And now he's way up on these steps looking down at this crowd, and they're silent. And he's like, This is my moment. I'm not going to tell you what he says. Pastor Jeff will bring us that word next week, okay? That's that's chapter 22. I'm looking forward to it already. It's going to be great. Okay. Deliverance has come, and he has an opportunity. And I hope we approach our new year this way. There will be suffering. There will be disagreement. There'll be plans that don't work out, all of that and more. But there will also be deliverance. And there will be times where God shows up and we're like, wow, Lord, only you could do this. And in the, in the best and the worst, my heart is always, Lord, your will be done. I want to be ready. I want to take those moments, and I know you do too. May we look at life this way. And sometimes they surprise us. I was meeting friends uh, at In-N-Out, you know, the one over on Harbor and the 405. And I was sitting, I was, I was going north on Harbor, so I get in the left turn lane. And I think it's Gissler or Geisler, however you say it. But I'm, I'm in there on the, the left turn. i got to turn left to go over to the in and out And I'm the first car. And it's red. And all of a sudden I see over here in, the, in, the, in our, so- our crosswalk, there's two homeless ladies. And they have a huge cart full of stuff. And they got stuff piled on top of it. And they're working their way across. I'm like, boy, that, that pace is a little slow. This is, you know, you know how you're watching and you're thinking, you're watching the lights. Like, mm, I don't know, I don't know how this is going to size up, right? 
and they get a little further and further, and they get just past me into this side, and everything goes haywire. Their big pile of stuff falls all over. And about the time, and they start to try and pick it up. And about the time that happens, that light turns green. And cars from North Harbor start coming. Well, the ones can't go because they're there and they stop, but the ones further right, they're flying by. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, man, someone should help those ladies, you know. And then I'm like, yeah, who's that someone? Okay, Lord, really? Me? Really? So put on the hazards. I put it in park, open my door, and I jump out. And I'm, ladies, can I help you with your stuff? And they were like, sure. And so I try to grab this, and that falls, and that falls, and every big bundle is tied to the shopping cart. So I'm not grabbing something and hurrying across, which was my plan. As cars were roaring by, I'm like, okay, we're in this together. So I got her to grab that. I grabbed this. She pushed, and the three of us made our way over, and cars were roaring by. And I tell you, I was never so happy to get to a sidewalk in my life, never so happy. And then I'm there, and I'm like, thank you, Lord. Thank you. And so then I'm like, i got to get back to my truck. But uh, thankfully, the light was red. I ran back, took off hazards, everything, parking, and the light turned green, and on I went. God was in it. God was in it. It was a neat moment. But here's the thing. My heart was pounding because it's like there's always that thing of like, am I the guy? Like, isn't there someone way younger and more able who should be doing this? Is it me? And I think we're so often in a place, the Apostle Paul, like, am I, do I have to go to Jerusalem to be beaten up, to be put in chains? But he accepted God's will. And he said, I just want to do what the Lord wants me to do. And I think there's no better way to approach this year ahead than just that simple, humble statement, the Lord's will be done. Lord, I don't want to get to the right of your will, to the left of it. I don't want to get ahead of you. I don't want to drag behind. I want to be in the center of your will every day of my life. Starting next year and on into eternity, that's the best place to be. Could there be anywhere better than the center of God's will? Of course not. We have an all-powerful, all-loving God. Why would we want to be anywhere other than in the center of our God's will? And that's what we read here today, and may that be our heart. If I'm the only one the Lord's will still be done right even when it's not any fun the Lord's will be done to conform us more and more into the image of God's son the Lord's will be done we see that in these godly people in the Bible and may it be true with us may his will be done and may our hearts be yielded to him this day and forever in Jesus name Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you do in people's lives. The Apostle Paul, Timothy, Luke, all these amazing godly people we read about. Lord, may we join them with yielded hearts. May we watch for how you're working in our lives and other lives. And Lord, when there's hardship and suffering, and it does come, May we handle that even with the maturity and grace. May we handle our disagreement with trust and patience and respect. 
may we go to prayer. And when our plans fail, Lord, may we just trust in you, knowing you have better plans. And that's what we want more than anything. So, Lord, I thank you for your love and your goodness. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We're only here because he saved us. He loved us so much to die in our place for our sins. And we thank you for that amazing, undeserved, beautiful gift. And we give you all the glory. And we give you all the praise. We give you all our love. We give you our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Rod. That was awesome. It, the the <laughs> Lord's will be done. Man, isn't that a toughie? I want the Lord's will as long as it's, it's good, you know. It's, that's, it's really interesting. I always think about you, you were talking about that, Rod. It was just, I always think of God as like the father who has your hand. And as a little kid, you don't, there's certain things you're not going to do. You don't want to do. You think you know better. He's saying, just trust me, stick with me. And that is certainly the challenge of my life, I'll tell you. Some glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away. When the shadow of this life has grown Have a great new year. Have a great day. In Jesus' name.